how you doing there? This is Wilbur Dunlap, and I wanted to tell you about the cafe on Broadway. Now, that's a coffee shop in downtown Salem Springs. You know where it is, right downtown. And it's a great place if you want to get away, you know, enjoy a nice little latte. Uh, it's not a corporate coffee environment. More, This is more appealing to the bohemian types, like my friend Snowflake. He'd feel right at home. In fact, he usually goes down the tavern down the street. So I just found out that they got themselves a liquor license. Now, can you believe that? I'm not kidding. I'm not pulling your leg. I, I actually, I hope that I can get my friend Snowflake to join me because he's uh he goes either way he goes for the latte sometimes and then he goes for that the cold one on other occasions you know like on a Friday or Saturday night so anyway that's our gonna be our hangout spot and you know we hope you come down and join us and if you do let them know that Wilbur and Snowflake done sent you down there now before I go I wants to read you this review highlight from yelp.com you're not gonna believe this this is awesome here's a guy here got himself a yellow shirt and a bow tie and this is what he had to say i would ride my motorcycle from tulsa oklahoma to siloam springs 90 minutes each way just to visit this little gym now i tell you that's some kind of endorsement ain't it why don't you come down and see what he's talking about and tell them Wilbur and Snowflake done sent you. Alright? Later. Revealing truth by exposing lies. What does that mean? That means that on this podcast, we're going to talk about a variety of subjects... But we have an intention in mind, and that is to move beyond political ideology, religious dogmatism, tribalism, and nationalism, even beyond personal opinion, beyond false authorities that so many people don't even question, and taking you, the audience, someplace that you may not be quite ready to go, to that place beyond us and them. Alicia Garza was in a bar in Oakland, California, drinking bourbon when the verdict came in. It was July 2013, and she had been following the trial of George Zimmerman, a neighborhood watch volunteer in Sanford, Florida, who had shot dead a 17-year-old African-American by the name of Trayvon Martin. Martin had been unarmed on his way back from the 7-Eleven convenience store down the street, where he had bought himself an iced tea and a bag of Skittles. There had, of course, been shootings of young black men before, but this one had a particular resonance for Garza because this young man had a similar build and height to her brother, and she felt that it could just as easily have been him. In the bar... Garza, her husband, and two friends had been checking their phones for updates from the trial. The jury had been deliberating for 16 hours on Zimmerman's fate. When the verdict was announced, she learned about it first from Facebook. Not guilty of second-degree murder and acquitted of manslaughter. Everything went quiet. Everything and everyone, Garza recalls. And then people started leaving in mass. The one thing that I remember from that evening, other than crying myself to sleep that night, was the way in which, as a black person, I felt incredibly vulnerable, 
incredibly exposed and incredibly enraged. Seeing these black people leaving the bar, and it was like we couldn't look at each other. We were carrying this burden around with us every day of racism and white supremacy. It was a verdict that said black people are not safe in America. Garza logged on to Facebook. She wrote an impassioned online message. What she describes is essentially a love note to black people. It ended with, quote, black people, I love you. I love us. Our lives matter, unquote. Garza's close friend, Patrice Cullors, read the post in her motel room some 300 miles away from Oakland that night. Cullors, also a community organizer working in prison reform, started sharing Garza's words with her friends online. She used a hashtag each time she reposted, Black Lives Matter. The following day, Garza and Cullors spoke about how they could organize a campaign around those sentiments. A call to action, says Garza, to make sure that we are creating a world where black lives actually do matter. They reached out to Opal Tometi, another activist that they knew in the field of immigration rights. The three women started by setting up Tumblr and Twitter accounts and encouraging users to share stories of why black lives matter. The slogan started gaining traction. Then, on August 9, 2014, a little over a year after Zimmerman was allowed to walk free from court, 18-year-old Michael Brown was shot dead by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. Officer Darren Wilson had fired 12 rounds. Brown had been unarmed. Protest broke out the day after Brown's shooting. There was some unrest and looting. Cars were vandalized. Commercial properties broken into. Police officers in riot gear took to the streets. Watching the drama unfold on TV, Garza had the same sickening feeling that she had when she heard of Trayvon Martin's death. Soon, the three women took to Ferguson under the auspices of starting a Black Lives Matter campaign. But when they reached Ferguson... Garza was astonished to see her own phrase mirrored back to her on protest banners and shouted in unison by people she had never met. More than 500 people signed up from over 18 cities across America, and a new movement was born. When a grand jury announced Darren Wilson would face no indictment in the matter of Brown's death, a group of protesters chanting Black Lives Matter shut down a local shopping mall. Later, after several deaths of unarmed black men, the phrase started to appear on t-shirts and mugs and badges. There are now over 30 Black Lives Matter chapters across the United States. From one heartfelt Facebook post, it has spawned what could arguably be called a new civil rights movement. As a movement, Black Lives Matter is decentralized, and the leaders have emphasized the importance of local organizing over national leadership. Dwight, you just heard that intro for the first time. What's your initial reaction to that? 
Well, my initial reaction is that it, it everything sounds uh, very complete and and very accurate. It's it's a basically what I got from the intro that you did, Mark, that's just a, a very good history of the movement that we've that we've come to know. Um, you know, first of all, I want to point out a couple of things to anybody out there that might be listening. Um, we are two old, dim-witted white guys talking about a movement called Black Lives Matter. So... One thing that I am keenly aware of, and I'm sure that Mark is too, is that we can talk about this as a matter of opinion, and we can talk about this as a matter of academics, or what we've read or heard on television or saw on YouTube, but from personal experience, uh, I humbly admit that I cannot talk about this. Um, I have struggled with the idea of white privilege, and as many of you know, uh, if you want to see some fairly ugly posts, all you have to do is look on Facebook, and you'll see that there's a a large misunderstanding of what the term white privilege is, and uh, I want to respond with this, Mark, and I think we were talking before uh, before the podcast that uh, we may not have too much to debate on this, but I, I'm not sure. I haven't heard Mark's complete opinions on this subject. But um, there's, there's a, you know, I've heard uh, phrases like uh, "all lives matter," which seems to be a normal response until you really understand what "black lives matter" actually means. Let me just interject here. Sure. I told my mom that I was doing a podcast on "Black Lives Matter," uh-huh. and she looked at me and she goes. Don't all lives matter? Exactly. Fundamental misunderstanding. Well, I told her, I said, Mom, uh, you can't say that. Uh, and she goes, why not? And I said, well, that's that's politically incorrect. <laughs> and she said, she gave me a puzzled look. And, and uh, I said, you know, if, you, if someone's talking about Black Lives Matter and you respond, well, don't all lives matter, that could be misconstrued as racist. Well, it could. But I, I think that most white people, um, whenever they say all lives matter, it's not a matter of racism. There's a few. Of course it's a matter of racism. You know, white lives matter, as uh, you know, some people will say. But that response that all lives matter is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the movement is about and what the name of the movement is about. Uh, the best way to say the movement Black Lives Matter in a way that would be more understandable to people who are not black would be Black Lives Matter too. And, you know, the, the movement, as we've heard in Mark's introduction, began as a response to, um, you know, the Trayvon Martin shooting. And then through social media... Um, it expanded, and I can still remember just uh, you know three or four years ago uh, watching reports of one black person after another being shot by police. Now, the funny thing about it is, is the media just started reporting on that, but the reality is that's been going on for a very long time. And uh, whenever I, I think I remember. Um, seeing a report of, I think it was in um, 2017, maybe, 
there was 956 shootings, fatal shootings, by police officers of unarmed suspects in the United States. 40% of them were black. Now, when you really think about that, you're like, okay. But the reality is, is that the population of African Americans in the United States is only 12%. But 40% of those unarmed people that were shot by police were black. So, you know, of course all lives matter. Of course they do. My life matters. Mark's life matters. Um, all of, every human being, their life, their life matters. No matter uh, age, color, creed, doesn't matter. But when you look at a statistic like that, you have to think that the system, especially the law enforcement system, says that black lives don't matter as much as other lives. And so, hence, the name of the movement, Black Lives Matter. So when people say all lives matter, it's true, but it shows a fundamental misunderstanding of what the movement is about. And then people will say blue lives matter. Well, of course blue lives matter. That's a reference to the police. And that's that's fine. Um, I have a relative that is a police officer, and does a fine job and uh, is a caring, loving individual, caring, loving person. Um, but to say that um, the problem you, is that, go ahead. The problem is that you have a movement called Black Lives Matter, and then you have a reaction to that. Yes. Okay. So it's the reaction. And it does. Somebody came up with "all lives matter" and tried to make it a meme and promote it and stuff. And that was reactionary. Yeah, okay? it was done without when, thinking and simply reacting. Well, when I say reactionary, I mean there's a there's an ulterior motive and a hidden agenda behind it. Yes, which is resentment. And okay, the, the resentment is I don't want your tribe to get recognition and validation. I want my tribe to get recognition and validation, or I'm going to push back against your. Um, you see what I'm saying? Well, I think also when we're talking about tribalism, of course we you know we promise to talk about that. What we also have to talk about, and uh, we've mentioned this in, in past podcasts, is the issue of power. So when you have, let's say that you do have two tribes. You have the white tribe and you have the African American tribe. Well, for the last 300 years, the white tribe, if you will, has had the monopoly on power in this country. And so when... African Americans say, hey, listen, we're equal to you. You know, we don't want to be better than you. We don't want to be separated from you, but we are equal to you. That is a, a statement that challenges the power of the white, if you will, tribe in America. And so it does because historically it wasn't always true that they were equal. They were less of a person. That's exactly okay, right. Okay, by the law. The yes, law. By the law before uh, before the Civil War. And then, of course, don't forget you have separate but equal nonsense and the Jim Crow laws and, and but, all of those things. And I read a book uh, about the modern-day Jim Crow, which talks about the incarceration problem mm -hmm. and why it's disproportionate number of blacks or African Americans, whichever term you prefer, mm -hmm. that are being incarcerated. And mm -hmm. this is a you know, and when you look at it uh, and you really analyze that, as, as this author did in the book, initially when someone came up to her and said, you know, that 
this mass incarceration of black people is the new Jim Crow, her initial reaction was to reject that idea mm-hmm. and to want to say this is uh, and, and, and recoil from it because mm-hmm. she didn't believe that. Mm-hmm. But then when she did the analysis and did the examination some years later, she ends up writing a book called The New Jim Crow where she makes the case that it is. And I've given this book to friends of mine who are white. And mm-hmm. I said, read this book. Mm-hmm. And uh, they get about one chapter into it and then they're like, throw it away. And they'll be like, <laughs> they'll be like um, you know, I don't agree with this. And I'm like, you did, did you get past the introduction? No, uh-huh. I, I read the introduction. I don't agree with it. Uh-huh. And I'm just like, read the book. Okay, because I read the introduction too, and I didn't agree with it either. Uh-huh. But when I got into chapter two and chapter three, I started to be like, "Oh, wait a minute, she's starting to make sense here." Uh-huh. And uh-huh. so, I think it's really important. I mean, we live in a culture where you have white people and black people uh, intermixing and dealing with each other on a daily basis, and it's like oh, you need to educate yourself on the subject if you're a white person. Okay, uh-huh. don't react or don't. Let me just say this: I think that you know when I say reactionary. I'm talking about someone who um, gets defensive and acts on ignorance. Yeah. And it's like, don't do that. You know, I want to I give a, 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 a prime example of that. Um, it, it, it was naive of me to even think that this would make a difference. But you can remember that um, right after the, uh, the shootings uh, of nine people in the church, and I think it was uh, Charleston. Okay. It? Yeah, South Carolina. Well, there's a big movement to to get rid of the uh, the Confederate flag, uh-huh. and I have a friend, not Mark, but another friend that is uh, a fairly right wing and a little bit redneck, and uh, you know he was uh, upset that you know he you know that they took the Confederate flag off the top of the General Lee from Dukes of Hazard and that kind of stuff. And you know I was kind of buying into this, um, and so I. Uh, I made a post on Facebook and said, uh, you know, um, I referenced being what it's like to be a, uh, a Southerner and somebody from the South and somebody, uh, you know, what does the Confederate flag mean to you for, for a white Southerner? So, and I didn't use the word white. I simply used for a Southerner. And I expected that you know, I would get responses like the Confederate flag means, you know, um, hot summers at the town square or putting peanuts in your Coke or, you know, listening to Leonard Skinner and this kind of stuff. All I got, the entire response that I got from that post on Facebook was what it meant was a reaction of white people to... Um, the movement to get rid of the Confederate flag, and it all had to do with race. And I was like, really? So all of you people are so hung up on feeling persecuted because you're white, which is ironic, uh, that you can't just embrace a Southern culture. And I was really quite, I was actually quite disappointed uh, in, in the response. But I think I'm, I'm... The response was white people. The response was white people defending being white. Okay. Instead of embracing the fact that the South consists of all kinds of people, and we have a culture of our own, and even though people, you know, want to make it about race, it's not always about race, you know. So, uh, anyway, back to the Black Lives Matter and... and uh, and those sorts of things, and what we're talking about, 
Um, when people say all lives matter, number one, it's out of ignorance. Because they don't realize, they're not really thinking about what African American people are saying when they say, you know, our lives matter. We're not worthless. We're not less than you. And number two, there certainly is a hidden agenda to protect white privilege. And white privilege doesn't mean that all of us white folk walk around in business suits and make a whole lot of money and, you know, drive around in brand new cars. White privilege means that when we turn on the television, we get the privilege of seeing someone who is the same culture and the same race as us. White privilege well, is, means when we walk into a, uh, a store... I don't see um, that as being white privilege at all. Yeah, I mean, you, well, you, that's that's. I mean, that, because I don't get any thrill out of seeing white faces. No, I don't like, get a privilege out of it either. But if you put yourself, <laughs> if you put yourself in the place of an African American person, well, I say I can. When do you that, walk into me, a store, everybody instantly notices you. I have a black friend that mm-hmm. that he and I we, uh, you know, we we have a, a, a pop at uh, at Mazio's here in town every once in a while, mm-hmm. and. When I walk in, nobody looks at me, right. and I'll usually get there before him, because he runs on a different time schedule, because he's from Liberia, where they don't have time clocks like we're suffering through in America here, but he usually gets there late, but when he walks in, every single head turns. Now, my privilege is, is nobody notices me. I don't have to present myself as someone different every day, but he does. And that's you know, what white privilege means. That's not what white privilege means, but I do take your well, point. Well, that's, that's what I've been told that it means. Well, that's like the tip of the iceberg, mm. okay? Because mm. it goes a lot more than that. Sure. Um, like, and, all right, let me but just... But I mean on a daily me, basis is what I'm talking sure, about. Sure, I mean, there's no doubt that that affects a person's psychology, what you've just described. Mm-hmm. In the same way a beautiful woman walks into a building and everybody looks at her and like, ooh, she's good looking. There's and a then, difference. I'm going to point out a little bit of difference, though. When a beautiful woman walks in, everybody looks at her because they want her there. When an African-American walks into a place that's all white, everybody looks at them because they don't want him there. There's a difference. Okay. So what I'm saying is there may be, there's obviously differences there. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about what those differences are. And there's many. So you identified one. Mm-hmm. I could say that in addition to maybe they don't want him there, is maybe it's they've never seen a black person before. Or maybe he's with a white woman and that creates some kind yeah. of controversy in their mind. Like that shouldn't yes, be or that's not does. appropriate. I mean, I'm. All my life I've dated black women, and I've been in these situations where I walk into a Walmart in some deep part of Wal- of Arkansas where they don't see interracial couples, and everybody follows us with their eyes as we walk around. Okay, so... Yeah, I I've know, seen that. I've, I've been yes. in... I know, and I grew up... Uh, I was born and raised on any reservation. Mm-hmm. I grew around uh, Indian people, dark-skinned people, I, and I feel an affinity for them. That's part mm-hmm. of why I've, I've been attracted to black women. And when I lived in Alaska for some time, I was um, I lived among the native people. I lived in an Indian village. Um, I was the only white kid in the school growing up. It wasn't until I went to high school with you in Silo Springs that I mm-hmm. had the... Uh, I, it was a culture shock for me. Mm-hmm. I, had been, I hadn't been around white people. Mm-hmm. I was. You might say that I was... Um, on the outside of the dominant culture, uh, looking in. 
Yeah. Versus being on the inside a, looking out. That gives you a unique perspective. So I've had a unique perspective. And you know, even when we were in high school together, I took careful note that there was no black people there. Yeah. Yeah. And now this town that we live in is quite different. There's a, a large um, uh, Latino population. It's changed quite a bit in the last 30 years. Oh, it has changed a lot. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you go to the local Walmart here, you see all different races represented. Mm-hmm. That, and different you know, languages as well. Yeah. You've mm-hmm. got... Uh, there's... People working there at the counter who might be from Cambodia or Mm -hmm. Laos. You've Mm -hmm. got all variety of people. Now, that Mm -hmm. wasn't true when we were going to high school. No, it wasn't. When when I moved here, I moved here just before you did. Or maybe, I mean, before I met you. And I moved here in 1984. And I moved from um, a town in southwest Oklahoma that had a military post on it. And I lived there for a short time. But it was very, what we would call multicultural nowadays and there was uh, people from Puerto Rico there was people there was African Americans there was uh, Germans there was Asians there was Koreans there was uh, Mexicans and uh, Cubans and uh, anything that you could think of and then I moved here and the only thing I saw was white people and uh, there for a while privately I called where we live now Snowflake City mm-hmm. because everyone was white and uh, but since I am white person it wasn't that big of an adjustment for me as a matter of fact to my you know embarrassment i have to say that i was probably a little more comfortable mm-hmm. you know and uh so when i think about that i think about um well white privilege is not about comfort white privilege that's an element that you mm-hmm. can't just you can't ignore that that's definitely mm-hmm. a factor but as i say it's like the tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. because when you um talk about white privilege what you're talking about is um the power structure of the mm-hmm. dominant culture right okay so which is the white culture if you you know just like we're saying that this town we grew up in and went to high school in there wasn't one black face you no. might see a native american and mm-hmm. and they were treated like the with the inward mentality they mm-hmm. were like the they were like excluded but in some ways mm-hmm. they were more acceptable because for whatever reason mm-hmm. you know we'll accept the indian and we won't accept the, uh, the black person Indians, you know what i mean yeah and mm-hmm. so it, it's really about factions and like okay we're gonna ally we're gonna have an alliance with this faction always underneath of it all is this power structure that emanates from uh harvard university and i and i don't mean to pick harvard university i could also say from new york city i could say from you know the the wall street i could say whatever uh, what these things represent are where privileged white people we're not talking about people with money mm-hmm. can send their kids to go to school and to meet people and to connect and to be able to to get a leg up on the dominant hierarchy okay mm-hmm. so this is the whole this is what white privilege represents it represents the um uh whether uh, the ability to have power within the society and th- and that's why i refer to it as the dominant culture when i instead of white because you yeah. you get in trouble when you start using racial terms like right. white and black so right. I, well you know, we're already in trouble anyway so. well i i've been guilty of this i've been mm-hmm. because i told you my history of growing up uh, being on any reservation in south dakota and nebraska then in alaska so i've 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 kind of adopted kind of a racist attitude against white people and huh. i will say I will say things about white people, and I'll just say, well, that's what white people do, or that's what white women do, or that's blah, blah, blah. And it's wrong for me to do that. I should stop that's doing that. That's stereotyping. It, you know, and it's I the have same to, thing that white people do to other people. Yeah, I need to correct myself mm-hmm. and stop using that language. Mm-hmm. What I should do is be more specific and thoughtful and say, 
and, and say this is typical of reactionary white people because mm-hmm. reactionary white people represent a small percentage. Yes, okay? that's right. And so, you know, when you watch the news media and you see a white person being reactionary against a particular ethnic group like black people or responding negatively towards Black Lives Matter or whatever, they might be put up on the news media on TV because it's they like controversy. That's what sells. Well, it sells. It gets it gets uh, people to watch and uh, so they can sell more commercials. Well, that's right. And uh-huh. so, I mean, you don't get on the Jerry Springer so- show by being thoughtful and considerate. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. But that's thoughtful exactly and considerate right. represents the majority of the of the white people. So I have to use the term reactionary white people because mm-hmm. I think that's more accurate. Well, let, let me let me go back to white privilege for just a minute. And I agree with you 100% on everything that you said. The reason that I that I mentioned the, you know, the day-to-day things is to put a, you know, to put a finer tip mm-hmm. on it because most white people are living in small towns across this country and go to their job every day. Rural. And rural. And um, the, the, the fact is, is that most of the population in the United States, mm-hmm. and I'm going to say it, you may not agree with me on this, but I'm going to say it, is segregated. And just like our little town here, whereas we may have um, a lot of different cultures here, but... Even within our little town, we have little areas of town where most people of Hispanic descent live. We have areas of town where the rest, for where the where the white people live, and so I just remember a post on Facebook, and of course Facebook is. I'm just going to say it. Facebook is the devil, man. Whenever it comes to politics, and I remember a post on Facebook. Somebody had you know put a meme on there and had a picture of three white hillbillies, and uh, (laughs) underneath it said white privilege. Well, that is a complete and total misunderstanding of what the term white privilege means. And whereas, if you're white, you are automatically, you have more opportunity in this country. Yes, that you know, the thing is that I've, as I mentioned, I've dated a lot of black girls over the years. I I like them, they like me, so that Mm -hmm. works. But there's an assumption on their part that because I look white or act white or present as white, that um, somehow that means money for them. They're like, I'm like, I'm going to have more money to, a, to spend on them on a date. Right. Like, I'm going to, if they marry me or date me, that we'll drive a nice car and live in a big house. Exactly. And Again, stereotypes. The, so the stereotype is that I had some kind of white privilege, which I don't. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I, you don't have that kind of white privilege, but you do have the privilege of walking into a store and not have everybody looking at you. Unless you I'm with have her. A, unless okay. you're with her. But no. if you're by yourself, you do have the privilege of walking into a department store yeah. and not be followed around by uh, an employee thinking you're going to shoplift. Yeah, I guess that I don't care about that. But you're right. I mean, I just don't think about that. I don't. It's not something that that I'm sensitive to, or don't you know? Because part of me, I, I'm not. I like to be controversial, and I don't care what people think. So, um, I mean, well, I'm, a, I'm an eight on the Ingram. I'm aggressive, uh, uh, so I, uh, you know, I'm a troublemaker. Uh, so I tend uh, to in, invite that. I'm but, a little um, more mellow. Francis Fukuyama famously argued in his 1989 book, The End of History, that Western liberal democracy had arrived at the end of its struggle. 
and I guess that was good news. But that's just the beginning of the story. Around the world, democracy is increasingly threatened by the rise of authoritarianism. Anti-liberal and nationalist leaders are attacking and cracking down on the press and civil liberties. In his new book, Identity, the Demand for Dignity, and the Politics of Resentment, Francis Fukuyama now argues that identity politics are partly to blame. What begins as a drive for recognition and respect through group membership can have a negative consequence because, he argues, liberal democracy is based on individuals, not on group memberships. Whether because of growing strength or growing frustration with the lack of progress, the political left has upped the ante. A shift in tone, rhetoric, and logic has moved identity politics away from inclusion, which has always been the left's watchword, toward exclusion and division. As a result, many on the left have turned against universalist rhetoric. For example, all lives matter is a term many consider insulting, if not downright racist, viewing it as an attempt to erase or eradicate the specific experience and oppression of historically marginalized minorities. The new exclusivity of the regressive left is tribal, claiming that outgroup members cannot share in the knowledge possessed by an in-group member. For example, you can't understand X because you're not white. You can't understand Y because you're not a woman. You can't speak about Z because you're not queer. The idea of cultural appropriation insists, among other things, these are our group's symbols, our group's traditions. The outgroup members have no right to them. For much of the left today, anyone who speaks in favor of group blindness is on the other side, the wrong side, indifferent to or even guilty of oppression. For some, especially on college campuses, anyone who doesn't swallow the anti-oppression orthodoxy hook, line, and sinker, anyone who doesn't acknowledge white supremacy in America, is a racist. We are at an unprecedented moment. For the first time in U.S. history, white Americans are faced with the prospect of becoming a minority in their own country. While many in our multicultural cities may well celebrate the browning of America as a welcome step away from white supremacy, it's safe to say that large number of American whites are more anxious about this phenomenon than they care to admit. Tellingly, in 2012, a study shows that more than half of white Americans believe that whites have replaced blacks as the primary victims of discrimination. Meanwhile, the coming demographic shift has done little to ally or alleviate minority concerns about discrimination. A recent survey found that 43% of black Americans do not believe America will ever make the changes necessary to give blacks equal rights. And more disturbingly, hate crimes have increased 20% in 
in the wake of the 2016 election. When groups feel threatened, they retreat into tribalism. When groups feel mistreated and disrespected, they close ranks and become more insular, more defensive, more punitive, more us versus them. In America today, every group feels this way to some extent. Whites and blacks, Latinos and Asians, men and women, Christians, Jews, Muslims, straight people and gay people, liberals and conservatives, all feel their groups are being attacked, bullied, persecuted, and discriminated against. Of course, one group's claims to feel threatened and voiceless are often met by another group's contemptuous ridicule or mockery because it discounts their own feeling of persecution. Such is political tribalism that we are seeing run rampant today. This, combined with record levels of inequality, is why we now see identity politics on both sides of the political spectrum, and it leaves the United States in a perilous new situation. Almost no one is standing up for an America without identity politics, for an American identity that transcends and unites all the country's many subgroups. How did we get here? With the collapse of the Soviet Union, the anti-capitalist economic preoccupations of the old left have taken a back seat to the new way of understanding opposition. The politics of redistribution was replaced by a politics of recognition. Modern identity politics was born because the left is always trying to outleft the last left. The result can be a zero-sum competition over which group is the least privileged. The opposition Olympics, often fragmenting progressives and setting them against each other. During a Black Lives Matter protest at the DNC held in Philadelphia in July of 2016, a protest leader announced, quote, This is a black and brown resistance march. And then he asked the white allies to appropriately take their place at the back of this march, unquote. The war on cultural appropriation is rooted in the belief that groups have exclusive rights to their own histories, symbols, and traditions. Thus, many on the left today would consider it an offensive act for a straight white man to write a novel featuring a gay Latina as a main character. Transgressions are called out almost daily on social media, and no one is immune. Beyonce was criticized for wearing what looked like a traditional Indian bridal outfit. And a student at the Louisiana State University wrote an op-ed piece where she claimed that women were styling their eyebrows to look thicker, quote, to look like ethnic women. And she said, quote, a prime example of the cultural appropriation that is going on in this country. Hmm. Well, Not everyone on the left is happy with the direction that identity politics has taken. Many are dismayed by the forces on cultural appropriation. As a progressive Mexican-American law student put it, if we allowed ourselves to be hurt by a costume, 
how could we manage the trauma of an eviction notice? As a candidate, Donald Trump famously called for a, quote, total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. He went on to describe illegal Mexican immigrants as rapists and referred disparagingly to an Indian-born federal judge as a Mexican, accusing the judge of having a, quote, inherent conflict of interest, unquote, and rendering him unfit to persuade over a lawsuit against Trump. Making the argument that Trump used identity politics to win the White House is like shooting a fish in a barrel. But this us-versus-them, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant sentiments were the bread and butter for most conservatives on the 2016 campaign trail. Senator Marco Rubio compared the war with Islam to America's war with the Nazis. So there's enough guilt to go around, I would have to say. People want to see their own tribe as exceptional, as something to be deeply proud of. That's what tribal instinct is all about. For decades now, non-whites in the United States have been encouraged to indulge their tribal instincts in just this way. But at least publicly, American whites have not. On the contrary, if anything, they have been told that their white identity is something that no one should take pride in. In combination with the profound demographic transformation now taking place in America, this suppressed urge on the part of many white Americans to feel solidarity and pride in their group identity, as others are allowed to do, has created an especially fraught set of tribal dynamics in the United States today. Just after the 2016 election, a former never-Trumper explained his change of heart in The Atlantic. Quote, My college-aged daughter constantly hears talk of white privilege and racial identity, of separate dorms for separate races. Somewhere in heaven, Martin Luther King Jr. is hanging his head and crying. I hate identity politics, but when everything is about identity politics, why is the left really surprised that white Americans turned out to vote white? If you want identity politics, identity politics is what you're going to get. The result of this class conflict is an America in danger of coming apart at the seams. It would seem the problem with this identity politics is that it does not account for intra-group differences. It does not provide a basis for forming coalitions and solidarities across groups. And it reduces politics to small groups seeking validation and gaining recognition, rather than transforming the social structures for the benefit of each and every individual. Another problem with the contemporary left is the particular forms of identity that it has increasingly chosen to celebrate and how this is provocative to those with traditional values, especially those of rural voters. Rather than building solidarity around large collectives such as the working class or economically exploited groups, it has focused on even smaller groups being marginalized in specific ways, having to do with sexual orientation, 
or race or gender. This is part of a larger story about the fate of modern liberalism, in which the principle of universal and equal recognition has mutated into a special recognition of particular groups, which are deemed to have special rights that the individuals do not have. It is no accident that identity politics is most rampant today in academia, in the entertainment industry, in the news media, in Silicon Valley, and in corporate boardrooms. Identity politics is a veneer over the class politics that truly defines our society. And education is the best prism through which to view class in America today. Higher levels of education are not only correlated with higher incomes and better life prospects, but also with a greater acceptance of the theories behind identity politics, namely neo-Marxist socialism, or what is often referred to as post-modernism. The liberal attitude toward the white working class, evangelical Christians, gun owners, and supporters of immigration control is not only hostile, it is elitist. It is summed up by Hillary Clinton's writing off so many voters as belonging to the, quote, basket of deplorables, unquote. The converse of Mitt Romney's similarly destructive class-based dismissal of the 47% of Americans who he felt did not pay income tax. The identity politics of the regressive left will not carry them to the progressive future of their dreams. The left appears utterly unable to recognize that the radical cultural transformation that they support, not to mention the insulting, dismissive, and self-righteous way that they meet opposition to their designs, is seen from the outside of their bubble as provocative and dangerous. People with Christian moral values feel attacked, and they object. As a political analyst, Sean Trindy, has written, consider that over the course of the last few years, Democrats and liberals have booed the inclusion of God in their platform at the 2012 convention, endorsed a regulation that would allow transgender students to use the bathroom and locker room corresponding to their identity, attempted to force small businesses to cover drugs they believe induce abortion, attempted to force nuns to provide contraceptive coverage, and forced Brendan Eric to step down as chief executive officer of Mozilla due to his opposition to marriage equality, fined a small Christian bakery over $140,000 for refusing to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding, vigorously opposed a law in Indiana that would provide protections against similar regulations, despite having overwhelmingly supported similar laws when they protected Native American religious rights. We tend to view these stories as examples of the cultural war. They are more than that. They are examples of a coastal, metropolitan, highly schooled, upper-class warring against the traditions and freedoms of a middle America, ex-urban and rural, low, middle, and working class with some or no college education. In short, 
These are examples of a privileged few attempting to impose their will on a recalcitrant majority. Perhaps this is why Donald Trump is in the White House and why he is likely to be reelected. I should have had you get a notepad and some and a pencil so you could have wrote down all the things you got to object to, because I'm sure you have a long a long list, a litany of things you might have to say about that. I do, and the first thing I would say is you've had time to do your research, and uh, I haven't. I think that the best way for me to react to uh, everything that you've said there is some some you know general statements because uh, I obviously I haven't done research on identity politics so I'm a little little uh, little off you know a little off uh, off balance here identity politics in the way that you describe it sounds like a, a very terrible thing and I can remember that whenever I was uh, a little boy they used to uh, there used to be a um, schoolhouse rock about the great American melting pot. And the idea was that people came from all over the world to come to America, and their culture was melted into the American culture. And somewhere in the 90s, maybe, they decided that the melting pot idea was no longer any good, and that it was going to be the great American salad bowl where there was a salad of various cultures. Uh, they were all thrown into one big bowl and all tossed together. But as you can imagine, in a melting pot, um, all the cultures blend together. But in a salad bowl, the cultures don't blend. They may, they may mix, but they don't blend. And I think in my mind, only I can speak from personal experience right now, uh, that would be the beginning of this, this idea would be the beginning of this uh, identity politics that you that you spoke of. Well, the, the term identity politics has been around since the sixties uh, and the and the seventies. Um, so, in the early in that during that time, you had the civil rights movement. But the big thing was feminist, you know, the mm-hmm. feminist movement. Mm-hmm. And then, of mm-hmm. course, the the early uh, the early version of the gay rights movement, which you know we know today is the LGBT uh, mm-hmm. movement. But yeah, all of these, parade, you know. Yeah. The idea was that, you know, uh, society wants to shame you for being gay, so come out and be proud. Mm-hmm. You know, gay pride. And that was the whole idea. Well, let, let, me, let, me go, let me go ahead and keep talking here just a little bit, Mark, if you don't mind. The idea that um, what you spoke of uh, about these small groups, uh, say uh, gay people or the LGBTQ group or African Americans or Asians uh, or... Uh, Hispanic Americans, and you know where each one of those groups somehow wants to feel exceptional and to have pride in their group that would be exclusionary. And um, the the thing that that has to be kept in mind, and this is only from a from from a I think it's from a left perspective, is when people start talking about those type of things, it's easy to forget that the exceptional culture in the United States that was allowed to have pride in its accomplishments and pride in its unity was the Anglo-Saxon culture. 
the the dominant culture, it still remains dominant in the United States. The idea of allowing these other cultures to feel exceptional, I don't know, no one's exceptional in my opinion, we're all the same in that way, but to take pride in their particular culture, uh, to take pride in their particular group, I personally think it's a wonderful thing. Now, can white people do the same thing in America today? If you do, you might be labeled a Nazi. But the thing about it is, is why should you have to? You're already a member of the dominant culture. You, you already are in a place of power. And I know there's a lot of white people saying, I don't feel powerful. I don't mean it like that. I'm, we're talking big picture, not, not individual ways. Rights and privileges have been have been yours your whole life. That you've had those rights and privileges your your whole life. Yeah. Now, the thing that I do agree with what you said about is that this this reversion into tribalism, and if you practice identity politics, that's exactly what you're going to get. I agree with that a hundred percent. See, in the salad bowl, there needs to be some sort of dressing added to the salad bowl that coats every piece of the salad equally, that, that bring that blends the flavor together and brings the flavor together. And right after 9-11, I can remember a series of TV commercials that uh, were designed to stir up our patriotism, and, and it had uh, various people saying, I am an American, and it was a young white lady, it was a, uh, an older uh, African-American fella, uh, it was a middle-aged Asian person, it was a uh, Muslim woman, it was a construction worker. All of these people said, I am an American. I thought it was a beautiful thing, because we are supposed to celebrate in our diversity. And the problem is, is now... There's no salad dressing to mix the bowl together. There's no outside enemy. There's no reason or need to come together. And when you don't have that, you do have these this, this descent into tribalism. What's going on here, in, in, from, what I, from what I see and listen to the news and listen to people talk on the left and the right, is really a power struggle. I... I I, as a Marxist, I always think about class struggle, and um, there's always a struggle of power. And, and what's going on here is, is there is a, a struggle for power between what has been the dominant culture for hundreds of years in this country and the various cultures of uh, the minority. And the, the left, as you said, I'm not sure I'm part of that left, frankly. I'm an old, old style. I look at everything from an economic, um, from an economic and a, uh, and a class struggle point of view, being, you know, being a Marxist, but, um, the left has, has begun to focus on these, uh, uh, these identity politics, as you say. But in reality, what's going on is, is a power struggle. So Donald Trump is a reaction to that power struggle. It's an attempt um, by the majority culture to hang on to what it has always had. As a white man myself, I, I, don't ha- I, don't, I live in a, a racially homogenous town for the most part. 
you know, there's plenty of Hispanic folks here, but um, I don't I don't have to walk into a uh, to an area and, and be the only white guy uh, in 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 the room. So, and and I can see how it's 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 easy to to feel threatened by by this power struggle whenever you've had the majority for for the entire length of this country uh, to, to, to feel threatened. And I think Donald Trump is a, is a reaction to that, to that threat. However, I don't think that there's any going back. Uh, I think that um, for the next hundred years, um, the Anglo-Saxon culture in this country is going to be receding. Unfortunately, I see a lot of increase in hate crimes and a lot of increase in... Um, um, violence towards minorities as uh, a reaction to that. You know what? I don't fear. agree with that. I, I'm actually very hopeful. I have a different view of it. Okay. Um, yeah, the uh, I might have painted a, a bleak picture, mm-hmm. um, but I see what's happening now as a uh, consciousness shift that's taking place with the the rise of the intellectual dark web and people really want to have a conversation about the things that we're talking about. People want to be involved in that conversation and I think that there's a spiritual awakening that's going to start taking place. I think that we're actually transitioning from one uh, level of growth in psychological and spiritual evolution that's taking place. We're moving from one stage into the next stage and so it's it, until we get like 10% of the consciousness to evolve, then there becomes a tipping point. And once you hit that tipping point, then it's gonna, the floodgates will open. But right now, there is this reactionary period. People are reverting back to tribalism. They're reverting back to this uh, old way of being in factions and division, etc., fighting, vying for power and all this. And I think that this is a temporary transition because I think that human beings, the, the general populace, they, they have access to YouTube. They have access to to sources of information that were not available. They're not, people aren't relying on mainstream news. People are not being manipulated like they have been in the past. I think that there's going to be an acceleration of evolution of consciousness. Well, I, I certainly hope so. I would love to see that. I, the, what I mean by increases of violent acts, I'm not talking about the majority of the dominant culture. I'm talking about those who feel extremely threatened. They're going to be forced or they're going to feel forced to be more and more extreme. Mm-hmm. To protect what they see as, mm-hmm. you know, the way things are supposed to be. Um, so I, I hope, I hope that the majority of the majority culture, just us regular, common people who are not part of different minority cultures, I hope that we do get there. I'm there. Yeah, I, I, you I, know, and I think you are too. Yeah, I'd like to think that uh, that this is, you know. Uh, a value that I hold, that yes. I that I've held all my life, and I want to see that value become the dominant value in the in our culture. But, and I look around me, and I think that the, the people are be growing in their social um, and spiritual uh, development. There, there is an evolution. There is a shift. There is a paradigm change that's taking place. And I think that you know people like you and I maybe um, have been ahead of the curve. But I think that other people are coming along and this is happening. Now, are there going to be, uh, unfortunate events, you know, where people act out in, uh, you know, reactionary ways and, and lash out and hurt people and their violence and so, yeah, that stuff's going to happen. Okay, sure. But you know what? I don't view that as, 
um, evidence that we're losing ground. I, I think that that's what is inevitably going to happen whenever you go through a paradigm shift and there's, there's going to be these kind of reactionary things. And in some ways, these reactionary things are what's going to cause people to shake them up to say, oh my God, what's going on? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so then people are going to be, I don't know, the, the, what am I trying to say? I'm not sure. <laughs> I think what you're trying to say is we're we're going to be we're going to be going into a transition. I think that's what we're in now. Yeah, and the first step of change is always resistance. Which yeah, there's is, there's which a, is what we have here, right? So I think that's what we're seeing, and mm-hmm. so I'm actually very hopeful and believing that that uh, human consciousness is is evolving, and that what we're seeing is just the death throes of the old um, power structure that that has been uh, you know going on for some time, but I believe that what's really happening uh, underneath it all is a spiritual awareness that's building. And I think that, you know, in spite of the fact that there are forces at work to try to uh, control and divide, divide and conquer the population, in spite Mm -hmm. of the fact that you have fake news, in spite of the fact that you have the um, people at certain levels of academia and the colleges and universities trying to espouse this uh, postmodern idea and enforce it in, through identity politics. All that stuff is, is, is not going, ultimately it's not going to have the transform society. What's going to transform society is people are going to become aware and say, you know what, we don't want this nonsense. We want to be better human beings and we're going to grow and we're going to evolve. Mm-hmm. And I think that is happening. Well, one thing I want to point out about the, the college universities, why would you refuse to allow someone to come and speak. If you don't agree with them, that doesn't keep them from speaking. Uh, that's an American value. So, yeah, that's... Uh, what was that guy's name? At a university and... That happens um, a lot. And I they mean, banned him. So, I, you know, as a person who believes in free speech, why would you do that? I mean, the whole purpose of our podcast here is to get the views of both sides. So if you if you refuse to allow someone to speak, how are you better than a fascist? You know, that's the way I look at it. But identity politics, that's, listen, it, it has its negative connotations. At the base of it is the fact that you cannot minimalize the experience of other people. Yeah, I mean, you can if you want to, but you shouldn't minimize the experience of other people. I know what it's like to be a middle-aged white man. I know what it's like to be a teenage white boy in a small town. But I have no idea what it's like to be a, a uh, African-American woman in a big city. So I can, I can go up and I can tell her how things are supposed to be. Uh, and I can talk about African-American women in big cities. And I can study, and I can read, and I can do all that kind of stuff. But experience, I have no idea. So, to me, identity politics is to recognize that different people have different experiences. And therefore, their different experiences, if they vary from the common culture, should be recognized and should be celebrated. The, the problem, and I think what I'm hearing you say, Mark, is the problem is, is when that happens... To the extreme, things fall apart because, you know, if you have a salad bowl without any salad dressing, you really just have a bunch of pieces of vegetables. You don't have anything that makes anything up uh, as a single as a single unit. You could even use the example of the United States government. There's 50 states in in our country. Each Unless you believe them. in the Mandela effect, then there could be 51 or 52. 
Okay. Sorry. That's sorry. another podcast. Sorry, I'm, sorry, That's sorry. a new one to me, but we'll go. Okay. He gets a lot of time on the internet. I, I don't. Uh, but anyway, um, if, uh, you know, you look at 50 states in this country, so each one, this country is made out of 50 states. But at the same time, there's a federal government that is over those 50 states. Each state has a different name, has a different song, has a different, supposedly a different culture, all this kind of stuff. But there's one thing that unites all of us, and that's this understanding of being an American. And, uh, uh, you know, of, of being in a nation state called the United States of America. So, identity politics, celebrating diversity, great, wonderful. I'm not going to tell you. Uh, anything about your culture, I don't expect you to tell me anything about my culture. But the thing about it is, is those are subcultures. We have a greater American culture. And the danger is when we lose sight of that. And unfortunately, because of human nature, the, uh, the only thing that seems to unite us as a people is an outside enemy. And uh, we had that for 40-some years in the Soviet Union. Now, we don't. I was going to ask you what you thought about that, because I, mm-hmm. I made brief reference to that in my little thing. I said that, you know, once we got rid of the Soviet Union and there was this conflict with, about having to do with economic redistribution, it became um, the, about recognition. Mm-hmm. We, so the, the left be, transformed from, you know, trying to promote ideas of redistribution of equality to, to recognition of equality. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's unfortunate. Yeah, uh, because um, you know we lost the Soviet Union. We lost something to unite against. When that happens, every you know it's it's really funny how um, you know think about families and being a therapist. You know I deal with this all the all this all this every day. So you get a group of people and they're all members of the same family, and they're fighting and they're arguing and they're throwing things at each other and this kind of stuff. But I'll tell you what, you bring the school system in and you put one of those kids in ISS, the whole family comes together and says, this ain't right. And so it's just a part of human nature. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have an enemy now. We have this terrorist group, Al-Qaeda, we killed Osama bin Laden. The thing is, is in reality, we really do have an enemy. But that enemy is extremely skilled in keeping our minds off of it. And keeping us looking at each other and keeping what, us wrapped up in our own What pray tell? What pray tell are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, well, let's see. Let's bring this back in like we harp on this every day. And that's the Anglo-American establishment. Uh, mm. The 1% of the 1%. Those are the ones. Those are the ones that benefit from this idea of division and... Uh, this this idea of little tribal groups pecking at each other. They benefit from that because they don't care. They don't care if we love each other. They don't care if we hate each other. As long as we buy their products. As long as we allow them to have all the power and all the money that they want. They don't care what we do. But they do know, and I'm, I know I'm sounding a little conspiratorial, but just hang with me here. They do know that the best way to keep us off of them is to keep us divided and to use identity politics, as you say, to, to keep us fighting amongst each other, to, to, to exploit racism, to, to um, make sure that anything that is 
uh, divisive gets put in the news to keep us talking about um, uh, the color of someone or, or the location that someone lives in um, or the enemy outside to you know the uh, an enemy country or an enemy religion, which is a, a shame. Uh, but to keep us thinking about those things keeps us paying rent. Keeps us paying rent. Keeps Uh-oh. us paying interest on our credit card payments. Uh-oh. I'm starting to and, sound like you. Yes, you are. And keeps us buying things that we don't need. And keeps us in wage slavery. You know what? To them. You you uh you saying all this, and mm-hmm. you might expect me to react to it and argue against it. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I'm going to do you one butter. Mm. I'm going to agree with everything you said, and I'm going to take it to another level. Go. Okay. I'm saying that let, let's go back to the Black Lives Matter for a minute. We sure. We started our conversation. Yeah. And, you know, what's this all about? Well, black men that are unarmed getting murdered. killed and murdered by the police. Let me give mm-hmm. you an example. A woman, she's got a baby next to her. She's in the car, and her boyfriend, he has a license to carry a gun. The cop pulls him over. The first thing he tells the officer is, I have a license to carry a weapon, and I have the weapon in the car. What does the cop do? He pulls out his gun, and he shoots the guy 12 times. Yeah. Okay, I remember watching a, this unfold on TV I where a, a black woman in Washington, D.C. is driving around mm-hmm. erratically. She's got her child in the, on the seat next to her, and right. what do they end up doing? They end up mur- shooting her mm-hmm. through the windshield and killing her right next to her baby. Mm-hmm. It was like a block from the White House, mm-hmm. and so, th- you know, there was some kind of because they were worried about her running her oh, car yeah. into the White House. Oh, Remember come that? On. How are you going to run your car into the White House? Right. <laughs> this is a black woman with mm-hmm. a child next to her, and they knew that. Yep. And they decided to shoot her. Right. What is this? Are we in Baghdad? Yeah. What right. the fuck? Right. Yep. This is a bullshit. Yep. yep. Okay? Yep. Now, I'm telling you, uh, I understand the visceral reaction of the black community to seeing black men being shot by cops. Yep. You know, what are, these, what are these cops? What do they represent? Who do they work for? They represent the power. Let's talk that, about the judicial system, mm-hmm. okay? You know, at one time we had Crow, Jim Crow laws in this country, mm-hmm. okay? Yep. And then when we got rid of that, all of a sudden, guess what? We have a war on drugs. Mm-hmm. And the same people who were being... Uh, oppressed by the Jim Crow laws are the same people being oppressed by the uh, the, the war on drugs. The war on drugs. Yep. You know, I'm sure that's just a coincidence. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure absolutely. That there's, there's no relationship. No, none at all. That would be a conspiracy theory. So, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, these these are the things that the average white person don't think about. Right. They haven't been educated on. Mm-hmm. And when they hear things like Black Lives Matter, the first reaction is, "Well, don't all lives matter?" Right. Okay, so I'm sorry, but you know you don't understand the plight of Black America because you haven't lived it, you haven't been there. Right, and, okay. and and that's that's not a racist thing to say that all lives matter. It's just a statement out of ignorance of what Black Lives Matter means. Now it's there, just ignorance. I would have to say that there are some people who border on racism when they say that, though. Well, sure. And that, those are the people I refer to as white reactionaries. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now I don't think there's a lot of them. I think there's a few people out there who are white reactionaries. And again, a lot of it is ignorance. Okay. Yes. But when you start to, to react uh, out of ignorance, okay, you're getting very close to racism, especially if you're part of the privileged class, especially if you're part of, you know, this group that has had a history of oppressing another group. Well, okay? and when you react out of ignorance, you're very easily manipulated. Think about if you go back into Nazi Germany, there was... 
you know, Adolf Hitler came into power, the Nazis came into power by blaming uh, a particular minority group, a group of Jews. Most people were looking for someone to blame because they felt that their power had been taken away. They lost World War I. They had been through the Great Depression, through hyperinflation. Nothing was working for them. And it was so easy to blame someone else for their problems and to say they took it away from us. They, they did this. They did that. And, I, and because of that ignorance in how things were actually working in the German Republic, uh, the Nazis were able to take advantage of that ignorance and come to power and cause great destruction for the entire world out of that ignorance. So when, when people react out of ignorance, it's a very dangerous thing. Yeah, especially when it becomes nationalistic or tribal in that sense. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this gives rise to a strong man and to fascist dictatorship. Right. And, you know, some people would argue that that's what we have in the White House. But, um, <laughs> oh, man, don't get me started on that. Now, one. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not one of those people. I'm not going to say, well, I do think that, that Donald Trump is a populist, which is, has the, there is a danger when you're a populist that you could become a, a dictator or, you know, because as a populist, you're not, you're not, you're not someone who is really looking at the Constitution as the rule of law. You're just kind of looking at, hey, I know best and the people, and I represent the people, so I'm just going to do what needs to be done right. kind of mentality. Yep. So I would much rather have a constitutionalist in the White House mm. than have a populist in the mm -hmm. White House because I think a populist is more inclined to break the rules and deviate from the Constitution mm -hmm. and wander off into the bushes. But uh, just because he thinks he's doing it for the will of the people and he's got a mandate and all this BS. Mm -hmm. Okay. But we had a guy in the White House who called himself being a constitutional lawyer who happened to be black, and that didn't work out too good from my point of view. For, mm -hmm. for You know, I mean, we, you know, one of the th only thing I asked from Obama was that he shut down the torture uh, facilities down there in Guantanamo Bay. And did he do that? No. no. Okay. Well, of course, that's because his hands were tied, they say. Well, is he a president or not? I mean, you know, I mean, so there's so many things that I can look to and say, why is there continuity of government when it comes to this and this and this and this? When Trump, when, uh, when we have a black man in the White House, why can't he fix these things? Why can't he address these things? What's going on here? Well, keep in mind that um, when you get into the White House, it doesn't matter what color you are, you are... You're, you're doing favors. You're asking for favors, and when you get in the White House, well, that's people how you, call in favors. Yeah, well, that's how, that's, you got the there. that's how you got there in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're bought and paid for. You're already compromised. You you know how the rules of the game are. There's certain things you can talk about and certain things you can't talk about. Right. You're not going to take the side of the Palestinian over the Israel because that would be a death wish. You'd be dead. they call you anti-Semitic and run you out of town on a rail, right. tar and feather you, mm -hmm. So because the Israeli lobby is that powerful. Mm -hmm. And so people who play the game of politics in Washington, D.C., they damn well know that. Yep. Okay. Same with, that's why the NRA gets away with everything. So there's many. <laughs> now we're talking about <laughs> now we're talking about groups that we might even call a corporate groups. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. So now we're that's a whole different thing. So you've we, we started out talking about identity politics and now we're mm -hmm. talking about like I don't know what you would call that. It's like entrenched um, um, what? Well, I think the official term is special interest. Special interest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and lobbying, lobbyists. lobbyists. Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah. again, we, you know, when we look at this, and I was talking about the police earlier. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, and I'm saying I understand the rage that someone feels and the hurt, and that uh, when you see black people being shot, or at least you hear from the news media that that 
police officers shooting unarmed black people, it doesn't yeah. take many before you get pissed. I mean, if you see one or two, and I have, yeah. live on TV, right. that's enough to piss you off. Right. It, it may not be uh, representative, it may be disproportionate, but that doesn't seem to matter because black lives matter. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so when you see some a woman getting shot down with her baby next to her, mm-hmm. guess what? Black lives matter. Okay, right. I I march with them. I've been to the Washington. I went to Fayetteville and marched with them when a, a black man in Fayetteville was shot on our guy. That's awesome. That's I, awesome. I walked up there to the. I lit a candle and I stood out there with you know because and I felt goosebumps on my on my arm as I was uh-huh. walking up the. I was a part of some civil action mm-hmm. and I think these are good things and I think yeah. more more people ought to get involved with it yeah. and so um you know but. You know, what is this police department? What is this judicial system? You know, when we're talking about the new Jim Crow laws, throwing people in jail because of drug laws and etc. What is what is the whole purpose of this uh, apparatus that we call the law enforcement? What is it all about? And I'll tell you, and this is where I'm going to take it one level higher than what you have. All right, and I'm going to say that... Really, the purpose—it's like the HR department at the company. You know, when you go, would you go down to the HR department at your company and, and complain that your boss used profanity or that he looked at you funny and think that they're going to take your side? <laughs> uh, well, let's put it this way: only if I had a really good lawyer. <laughs> well, I mean, so wait a minute. Now you're saying that uh, the HR department is not there for the employee? I don't think so. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I always thought that the HR department was where I go if I have a problem with my boss. Well, if I'm being sexually harassed or something. Look at the very name of the HR department. Human Resources. Now, does that mean that it's a resource for humans? No. It means that you are a resource for the company. Okay, okay, okay. So you wait are a collateral. That... You are uh, uh, you you are um, a source of income for the company. You are a, a uh, I'm trying to think of the word. Um, you are a uh, well. You're on the plantation. You're on the plantation. Right. Now yeah. that you have to buy, you have to spend your money at the company store. Exactly, and, and you got to pay rent. And then you're going to go up to the massa and exp- and tell him that you're not being treated good by the wow. taskmaster. I don't think that's going to work out. Too mm, good. No, not too okay. Much. Okay, okay. So now I'm starting to get the picture. Mm. So I'm so the human resource department is not there for me. No, it's there for to protect the liability of the corporation. Absolutely. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, you know what? I think that's exactly what how I would describe. The judicial system. Sure. It's not there really for the protection of the and providing equal rights for the people. It's really there to prevent a revolution. Absolutely. Because the number one purpose of a government is not to provide for the general welfare or the common defense. The number one purpose of a government is to stay in power. Wow, I'm a, I, you know, it's, it's shocking how when we start talking about these issues, mm. as controversial as they may be, and we go down this rabbit hole and that rabbit hole, it, when it finally, you know, it always ends up with us finding common ground. And it's always shocking to me how the far right and the far left can come full circle and mm. come to the same conclusions about these things. Yeah, and and it, I think we're in. I think uh, out of all the different things that we've talked about, the one thing that we are definitely in common ground on is that the current system is broken. It, it, it protects the power of the privileged few, and that it needs to be changed. 
I think we're on common ground on that. Here's where I would like to persuade you, and I I don't know if I'm going to be successful at it, but (laughs) when we talk about identity politics, what I see as a problem, and and, uh, um, I'm going to bring up a name, uh, that's uh, Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. Uh, You may not like him, uh, but I do. I, I, he, he presents uh, information to people that it's resonating with people. He's, mm-hmm. he's calling people to take personal responsibility for their lives. Sure. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, okay? I think and, it's great. And one of the points that he makes, and this is a point that I have made in the past and I want to reiterate, is that uh, you know identity politics, as I see it, is problematic because they tend to take what they consider to be the rights of the group and put that ahead of the individual. And I think that's backwards, upside down, and, and bogus. If we would, as a libertarian, I always want to put the rights of the individual first because then the rights, the needs of the group get met. Okay, so I'm a big advocate of, you know, talking about the rights of individuals. And this whole identity politics is this idea that groups, special groups have special rights. And I think that's completely wrong, and you're looking for trouble when you do that. Well, special groups have special rights. So that is, to me, I, that catches me as an overstatement. And well, let's talk about an issue. Point. What about transgender issues now? Talking about you sure. have to have the right the right pronouns. This is what got. This is why uh, Jordan Peterson was brought to the forefront is because he stood in opposition to the laws in Canada that were going to uh, incriminate or cause somebody to go to jail or or be fined because they didn't use an individual's proper pronouns. Like if, mm-hmm. if someone is a male to female transgender and that person was biologically male or born a male or was a boy growing up, but they decided to become a girl, now they want to be seen as female and they want to be recognized as, and, in that way. And so if mm-hmm. you don't say she or her when that pronoun is what they request, then by you not um, uh, conforming to that pronoun or using that pronoun in discussion, then you're somehow guilty of a crime now. So it's being enforced. Speech is being enforced. It's not free speech. It's well, enforced speech. Now, I don't agree with that. Right. I, I think out of common human decency, if a person wants to be identify, if a person wants to identify as whatever gender, that's the gender they should be called. Well, I agree. And you know, I was married to a trans woman. I don't have an issue here. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that you know, then G, uh, Jordan Peterson doesn't either because he. Um, he, you know, when he's talking to somebody who's trans on a one-on-one basis, he's respectful of what they want. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, and I think that's the right way. But the argument he was making is the government doesn't have the right to force speech and impose that on me and tell me what to do. If the government can tell me what to do, the government can tell you what to do. This is the problem. Okay, hold on just a minute. So I'm going to use an example from history and see what you think of that. What if the? What do you think about the government telling me? Which color people I can rent my apartment to? Mm-hmm. You disagree with that? I mean, well, as a libertarian, I should be able to choose if I just want to rent my apartment to white people, and that's it. That's my free will. I mean, I can choose whoever I want to. Yeah, the libertarian view is let the free market sort it out. Okay, well, the free market we've already talked about is skewed. There is no such thing as a free market in this country. It's not free. It's it's influenced strongly by. Anglo-American uh, establishment. Certain groups have historically been persecuted. Right. So, if a law is passed that protects their rights and forces other people to give them equal rights, then that's a just law. 
a uh, if if I have an apartment here in downtown where we're at, it's a little studio apartment, and um, somebody comes in and they got the money and they got a good credit history, but they're uh, the wrong color, and I don't rent it to them, and they can prove that I don't ever rent my apartment to those people mm-hmm. of a particular color, then they can sue me. They can close me down. They can force me to rent an apartment to someone that I don't want to rent to. Why? Because historically, that group has been persecuted and, and ostracized and alienated by the majority culture. Mm-hmm. So, it's not human nature to just spontaneously make things right sometimes, especially when, when people who are in power, and I don't mean like power like government, but when you have a culture that's traditionally in power, it's not human nature for people to give that power up. So sometimes laws have to be passed and things have to be done in order to equalize that power. And think about what, uh, the, what had to be done just to uh, get the government to force me to rent an apartment to someone who I don't like because of the color of their skin. Think about how many people died. Think about how many people continue to die today in the Black Lives Matter movement. Think about Martin Luther King Jr. and how he died, and all of those people down in the South in the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s and the 1960s. So it's not like these things um, are just imposed on people. It's the the group that's been ostracized and discriminated against has to rise up, has to demonstrate, has to make a big deal about their situation to call attention to themselves so that these laws can be passed and these laws can be enforced. And so identity politics, I understand how that divides us, but also there needs to be a fair an equal application of the laws to everyone. And that's 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 where I that's where I go. So the free market can sort some things out. That's that's great. But people have beliefs and prejudices that sometimes go deeper than money. What do you mean? Well, deeper than money. Deeper than money. In in other words, um, someone who is a bigot or a racist or a homophobe you know, if they have, or let's let's even talk about religious. You know, someone who is believes that homosexuality is is a sin and and refuses to bake a cake for a wedding. Um, now, here's the thing: they could have made money on it. They could have made a profit. Shoot, they probably could have cost and charged them four times the amount or ten times the amount. They could have made money on it, but they refused to do it. So, so as a consequence, they have to pay a hundred and forty thousand dollar fine. I, I don't know about the hundred and forty thousand dollar fine, and I'm only using that as an example. Uh, but what I'm saying is, is that some prejudices and some beliefs are more important to some people than money. Well, I I hear what you're saying, and my thing is, when as a libertarian, it's like, hey, let somebody be uh, a bigot. You know, guess what? That place that makes cakes and refuses to do business with the uh, LGBT community, guess what's going to happen? They're going to lose the business. They're going to lose the business. And the guy across the street is going to take that business, and he's going to be happy to take that business. But here's the problem. And, here's the problem that I'm going to say with that. No, we're having a good discussion now. Yeah, Here's the problem I'm going to say with that. The LGBT community is extremely small. Okay? 
Yeah, but so, they are players when it comes to money. and, and They and, know and, how to do it because sure. they have to. Well, okay. They have to. So do you really want to be in business and decide you're not going to serve them? Does that make any? Does that make good business sense? If it goes against my religious convictions, well, I'm going to do it. Okay, fine. So who should who should tell you you can't? I well, mean, if I, if I'm the here's here's the thing. If I'm the only bakery in town, oh, that's silly. Let, let me, you know, <laughs> this is why, I love it. This is good. This, this, is, this good. is this is why gay people live in cities, oh. so they don't have to deal with that rural uh, Judeo Christian bigotry. Okay, mm. so okay. that's exactly why. And this is why when you look at a map and you say, okay, who votes Democrat, who votes Republican, mm-hmm. you look along the coastline and the big cities like San Francisco, New York, they're all heavily uh, red. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the the red states in the middle and the mm-hmm. blue on the outside. Right. Yep. Well, one of the reasons is because people who are outside the mainstream are going to gravitate to the coastal cities because there's less prejudice and, and there's less um, of this kind of behavior. And more so, opportunity. So when you move into a rural area and say, hey, we're here, we're gay, oh, hello. <laughs> I mean, and, and then you get, offend, you get offended and make a federal case of the fact somebody doesn't want to bake you a cake. Oh, well, too bad for you. I'm sorry, but I don't care. About, I mean, that's ridiculous. Let me but, give you another but, but example. But don't, don't people have a right? And we're not, we're getting on, on to is, the LGBTQ community. I'm talking about anybody. Doesn't anybody in this country have a right to live wherever they want to live? Uh, if you were okay, if you're a wait a minute, nobody's telling somebody. I got him stuttering. That, it's just a, I, I'm astonished because it's like, look, people who are progressive. To, if we're uh-huh. going to use the word progressive, oh, I prefer they, that word. They want to be around places like San Francisco and New York. They love places like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's not like somebody's. They're not. They're not in a ghetto. They're not being segregated. But, but they what choose if, to be there. What if I? Why wanted, they want to be around people who are like minded? But what if I want to stick out like a sore thumb and in, okay. in, in a town full okay. of, uh, you know, uh, so, red blooded uh, Republicans? What about if I want to well, stick then, out like a sore thumb? That's what fine. About if I, mean, I like to do that. Hey, I relate to that. I'm a contrarian. I, I tend to be a troublemaker. I'm a difficult person. But don't I, I don't have, have the pro- same rights as you, everybody else in that town to partake of business and live where I want to live? No, no, no. We're talking about a cake. Look, you you have every right to do whatever everyone else does. It's all individual rights. But this is uh, identity politics at work when you say, oh, I'm going to sue you because you won't make a cake for my wedding. The owner has every right to d- to deny you service. Am I wrong? No, I think I think I'm talking about general things, and you're still stuck on the cake. Well, okay, well, I'll give you another. I'll give you another. I mean, this is outrageous. I mean, look, in New York City, some a cab driver was fined ten thousand dollars or something because he had a lesbian couple get in the back seat of his cab and they were kissing, you know, making out, smooching or whatever. And he looks in the rearview mirror and he says, he he gets all indignant, get out of my cab, and so. You know, they take his cab number and they report him to the city and he ended up losing his license or paying a $10,000 fine or some ridiculous thing. Okay. And I'm like, you know, my thing is, it's, it's his cab, it's his rules. Well, it's his cab and it's his rules, but uh, there's certain times where his cab and his rules have to be supplemented by people's basic inalienable rights. Yeah, I don't, that's not a basic inalienable Look, you if know, he it, had a straight couple in there kissing and making out, would he have thrown them out? No. Okay. I agree he's a, he's a bigot and an idiot and an yeah. asshole. Yeah. Look, it's not, it shouldn't be illegal to be an asshole. <laughs> well, yeah, you got a point there. I can't disagree because I've been called an asshole on several occasions. So, yeah, I'd hate to be in jail or fine for That's being where an identity politics has taken us. Hmm. It's taken us over the edge where it like doesn't even make sense anymore. 
Yeah, I, I can see I can see your point on some of these things. At the same time, though, you, you I want you to consider my point in that regardless of what group you you belong to, you sh- don't you think you should have equal rights? I'm about rights for the individual. Uh-huh. Okay, when you start saying I'm gay or I'm this or I'm that. And so, you know, you know, I'm going to I'm going to uh, I'm going to go to the city and I'm going to complain about the way you treated me. And then you're going to regret this, Mr. Cab driver. I'm going to make sure you pay. And then, you know, you get slapped with a ten thousand dollar fine. What kind of ridiculous nonsense is going on in this country to allow that kind of it's like I just don't but get weren't it. Those two, I don't get it. Weren't those two girls making out? Weren't they not individuals? Did they not have a right as an individual to kiss who they wanted to? Sure. OK. This idea that you're going to protect a particular group, mm-hmm. to me, and doesn't make sense. The idea, what I say you know, is I, you I, should protect the individual. Everyone should have individual rights. Yeah, I okay? agree. I if agree. I'm in the back of the cab by myself, mm-hmm. and the guy tells me, hey, I don't like the way you look, I don't like the way you smell, I don't like, get out of my cab. Mm-hmm. Am I going to go to the city and complain and get a ten, find him for that? Because, you know, I'm an individual... And people can discriminate against me. When I walk in and say, I want to buy a cake, and they're like, dude, you smell, you reek. Your, yeah. your, your body, your body uh, I can't have you in here. I'm trying to do business. Well, You're going to have to leave, sir. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Here's the thing, and I agree with you 100%, but here's the thing. you got a choice to take a bath. You don't choose what color your skin is. Mm-hmm. You don't choose what gender you are. Mm-hmm. You don't choose what, and I, a lot of people may disagree with me on this, but my mm-hmm. personal opinion is, you don't choose what your sexual orientation is. Mm-hmm. If you choose, if you're being discriminated against because of something you choose, mm-hmm. then yeah, I mean, if you stink, well, get out of my shop. Look, it wasn't that. Okay, I can tell that you're gay by looking at your face. No, they chose to kiss, and he's okay. like, "Look, I think what happened was he asked him to knock it off, and okay. they and they didn't do that. Okay, so then he escalated by saying, "Okay, you got to get on my cap." Okay, so now. And I think that the reason that he said get out of the cab was not because they were kissing or they were gay. It's mm-hmm. because they disrespected his, he, it's my cab, my rules. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think that's just basic courtesy. Sure. If you have, you know, if, if you violate basic courtesy and you think that you should get special treatment because you're in a group. Now, I'm not saying that that's what happened. Right. I'm just saying that, I, that I've seen this kind of scenario play out before. Mm-hmm. And so it's a touchy issue. And I do recognize your point. Mm-hmm. Okay. I do mm-hmm. recognize your point. And so, you know, this could, I can see it. You know, it's funny. And, is, and I could recognize your point too. Cause yeah. I mean, the guy's driving the cab, he's working. He, yeah. he has the, uh, he has the freedom to... Well, he doesn't, apparently. Well, I mean, he should have I would the think... freedom to do business with whoever he wants to. Yeah. Now, if he was a Uber driver, maybe it'd be different. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, you know, maybe he needs to go work for Lyft. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh... Right, yeah. I yeah. mean... Um... Don't even get me started on them people. <laughs> I, I'm glad we can bring some levity into this. Yeah. And I, you know, we haven't laughed very much in this. Uh, usually we yeah. do crack up and laugh. Yeah. But this, yeah. this whole thing about identity politics, Mm-hmm. and race it's a very uncomfortable subject and it is. you know i don't like to talk about it and i you know i even have you know but here we are and yeah. it's something that uh, that america is wrestling with it's something that we need to have this conversation and people need to get educated we can't afford to be ignorant we need to be compassionate we need to be understanding we need to be able to step outside of our own bubble in our own comfort zone uh, and to grow emotionally and spiritually and I think that that's really what's happening I think that you know what we're witnessing is this reactionary uh, people slipping back into tribalism 
you know, and this, the last death throes of the old consciousness as it's going out. We're moving in. I, I certainly hope so. I think we're moving into a more uh, evolved spiritual awareness where people are starting to have more compassion, understanding, and love for one another. You know, even if we don't, right, there's still something that does transcend all this tribalism. And it's really a simple statement. It's been around for 2,000 years. And it's this. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's all. That's all it is. Treat other people the way that you want them to treat you. It's pretty simple. That goes beyond identity politics. That goes beyond, um, you know, somebody buying a cake for their gay wedding or two lesbians making out in the back of the cab. You know, <laughs> both, both the cab driver and the two women violated that rule. Yeah, there was. They a, both did. There was a fundamental lack of, of common decency and, 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 and courtesy and respect. I think is mm-hmm. you know, and so yeah, this is the problem. Um, uh, that yeah, it's 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 just that simple. You know, I think that we can solve the world's problems most by uh, practicing the, the golden rule. There, yeah. You know? And I think that golden rule, frankly, I mean, I'd say from a Judeo-Christian background, but um, I think you can find it in just about every religion in the world, mm-hmm. and it's something that simply transcends. All of these things. If you treat everyone else the way that you want to be treated, and that's mm-hmm. regardless of color, mm-hmm. sexual orientation, gender, age, uh, ethnic background, uh, you know, country of origin. If you do that as an individual. Now, we've talked about systemic things, and mm-hmm. um, those, are, those are things that we as... Uh, individuals as groups we need to do something about but in in a personal life in your own personal life if you follow that rule then you'll do fine when interacting with other human beings yes exactly yeah Yeah, so you know in in terms of the politics of it all and where you and i find common ground is that you know strangely enough being on the right (laughs) and the left Mm -hmm. we seem to identify the same systemic problem Mm -hmm. and this you know and so uh, that's interesting, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's it, it is interesting, and and it's really it's really funny that you know you and I could sit here and we could argue about identity politics. We could argue about Black Lives Matter. We could argue um, about uh, the Me Too movement. We could we could argue about the nature of reality. We can do all of those things, but the one thing that me and you are on the same common ground with is that there is a small group of individuals that are profiting both literally and figuratively from the division that exists in this country. Right, yep. And we can agree on that. Whatever you want to call them. The rent seekers. The the rent seekers. And, you know, to to borrow a term from uh, Noam Chomsky, we are in wage slavery. Living on the plantation, yeah. That's right, man. I know, we're uh, we're just, uh, we're uh, we're living on somebody else's farm. It's time for us to figure out how to take the farm for ourselves. No, you I don't showed know how me. To do that, but you showed me that video of the guy who's a libertarian socialist. I thought that yes. was very interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would almost like to invite him to talk with us and, and see what common ground we can come to. And mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm, it also brought up the idea of the uh, whole holacracy that we mm-hmm. talked about. I want to put that on our list of things to talk yes, about. I think it already is. And uh, so, so while I'm thinking of it, why don't you pull out your um, yeah, your handy dandy. Random number generator, and see what we're, our next topic of conversation is going to be. I, I want to put a few things on that list. You know, this week I've been really looking at Jordan Peterson and, and this evolving new uh, what they refer to as the 
uh, intellectual dark web. And uh, I want to talk about that, you know, and uh, that's okay. an interesting subject. And there's a lot there to get into. And it, it leads into the discussion of integral theory by Wilbur and his idea of these levels of consciousness. And, and he identifies two hierarchical structures, one being like the traditional hierarchical structure that's like authoritative and, you know, this absolutism versus the hierarchical that has to do with psychological and spiritual development, which he calls the growth hierarchy. And so that's a very interesting discussion where he makes a distinction between the healthy hierarchy and the unhealthy one. That's a topic of discussion. So there's a, this whole, it's, my mind has really been opened up since I started uh, becoming aware of this intellectual dark web. I got to turn you on to it, man. It's something I want to be ta- I want to talk about. Well, I'm going to I'm going to check it out um, between now and the next time we meet. Now, we talked about we've talked about a lot of things that could get us in trouble. We talked about uh, <laughs> hashtag me too. We've talked about Black Lives Matter. We even got into the LGBT. We got uh, into the LGBT a little bit, a little bit today. Um, but what we're going to talk about next week, get ready, Mark. This is going to be a doozy doozy. Is something that will definitely get us all in trouble, and I'm very interested to see if we can find any common ground. Oh, yeah? What is it? Immigration. Immigration? (laughs) Yeah. Immigration. Immigration and the wall. I don't know if we want to talk about the wall or not, but I think we should definitely talk about immigration. Build it tall, build it tall. Build it tall, build it tall. Watch them crawl, watch them crawl right underneath that wall. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, Fortress America. <laughs> yeah, Fortress America. Okay, well, that will oh be a subject for our next podcast. So if you're out there listening to the two dimwits and mm-hmm. you'll know what we're going to discuss next week, please yep. tune in. I hope you enjoyed this, and we're going to sign off. So from the right, I'm and, saying goodnight. And the left, I'm saying goodnight, too. So goodnight, y'all. Goodnight, job boy. <laughs>